Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We begin our study today of the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is one of the history books of Scripture. So before we actually read chapter 1, let's go ahead and give you a historical context so you have something to frame this around. The Lord's people, uh, as he called them in the book of Genesis under Abraham to be his people, that he would make Abraham into a great and mighty nation, whose descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Eventually, under King Solomon's son Rehoboam, so would be Saul, then David, Solomon and Rehoboam, the fourth king of Israel, of God's people, as they lived in the promised land, he was a fool, and the kingdom under him split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And that happened... I always confuse myself on 9th century or 10th century, which way to go in the, in the B.C. times. 1st century would be the zeros, so I guess that would be 10th century B.C. Uh, is when the kingdom divided. And then as you look forward, it only takes a couple hundred years of just a complete unfaithfulness. As the northern kingdom of Israel had built for themselves, two new worship sites in the northern city of Dan, the southern city of Bethel, uh, in order that they might worship these golden calves that they had built. Every king of Israel is described in the book of Kings as being wicked, evil, in the sight of Yahweh. So the Lord uses the nation of Assyria to destroy, to conquer those people. And then, that was 722 B.C., 587 B.C. is when the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is also going to be delivered over to God's judgment. They have, for a a long chunk of time, they've been kind of alternating back and forth, not necessarily in that order fully, like consistently, but they had good kings, they had bad kings. They were faithless, they were faithful, they went through stretches. Um, And the Lord, after a while, does bring judgment upon them. Babylon is the nation he uses to do it. Now, Babylon had already conquered Assyria, and now they're conquering Judah. They take the Judaites, the people of God, into exile over in Babylon. That was 587 B.C. when Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed, the Babylonians carry off all the goods from the temple, the holy things of the Lord, and they put them in the house, the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's false god. Now, it's... 49 to 50 years later that Cyrus of Persia is going to conquer Babylon in 538 or 537 BC. And he takes the people of Judah and he sends them home. He even offers to pay to rebuild not only their homeland, but the temple itself. This was something that we know from the Cyrus cylinder, um, a piece of pottery that has been found, archaeologically speaking, that was Cyrus's practice whenever he conquered a land. He would take anyone exiled there, and he would send them home and pay to rebuild. So just part of his character. Now, we learn in the book of Ezra that 42,360 of the Judaites at that time returned to Jerusalem and Judah with Zerubbabel. Uh, and they are going to, it's going to take some time, 20, so, 20 or so years, that the, 
they are working at rebuilding the temple. They start and stop, start and stop. They face opposition. But by 517 or 516, it's finally completed and dedicated. And that's under the reign of King Darius. So Cyrus is, is deceased. Darius is in charge. Then the book of Ezra skips right over Darius's heir, Xerxes. Xerxes, by the way, is the one who reigns on the throne of Persia when Esther is queen. So the book of Esther in the Old Testament. So we skip over that altogether. We go to 457 BC to Ezra himself when he goes to Jerusalem. The purposes there are to enforce the law of God and to assess the needs of the people to see what provisions the king can send them. Because at this point, Persia is the empire. And the Judaites, although they get to live in Judah, it's not like they're their own nation again. They never get to be that again. That hasn't happened. And so they are citizens. Well, that might be a strong word. They are servants of the king of Persia. When Persia is conquered by Greece, then they're under Greco rule, I guess you'd say, Alexander the Great. And then when Rome takes over that, that gets us to our New Testament era as they are subjects of the Roman Empire who pay taxes to the Roman Empire. But for our time now, so the king is wanting to know how he can help in Judah, what's needed over there for that people. It sounds like a good thing, a, a, good, a good king, at least perhaps in some way. That's Artaxerxes. And that takes us through Ezra's book. That brings us to Nehemiah's book. Nehemiah is going to be a servant of that king, Artaxerxes, in his court. He's a court official, cupbearer, as we see in the final verse of today's text. And some, some Jews come to him, some of the Judaites, informing him of what's happening in Jerusalem and the dire straits of what that city looks like. And Nehemiah is going to take up a petition to the king to see how they can help. That's going to be the structure, I guess the historical backdrop that you need to know to understand what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. So let's read the text. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Yahweh God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though you are outcasts or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin with Nehemiah. Nehemiah would be, he would be with the people of Judah, but living in the king's court not living in Jerusalem or in Judah with his, his fellow Jews. And so as we, we begin the text, there's not much I can say about Hakaliah, as his name only appears in the book of Nehemiah twice. So instead, let's look at what we can talk about. The first thing would be this month, Chislev. That is the ninth month of their year, which would be equivalent for us to November or December time. Their year doesn't start in January like ours does, but started with the kind of the March-April time frame. So this is the 20th year now of Artaxerxes' reign, which puts us into 445 B.C. And Nehemiah admits that at the time, Artaxerxes and himself are living in Susa, in a citadel. Now, Susa is known in history to have been the residence of the Persian kings in the winter months. And it's about 200 miles to the east of where we would think of Babylon today be the land of southern Iran, perhaps, uh, where this is going to occur. So Hanani is going to make the trip. That's no short trip, by the way, probably clocking in at about 800 miles that Hanani traveled in order to deliver this message. And he comes, and he gets to speak now to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah identifies Hanani as a brother. Now the question there becomes, okay, is this a literal brother, like they would have grown up together because they had the same dad, or is this a reference to a people group? So they are brothers because they are of the same tribe. I don't know the answer to that one. There's nothing in the text that would indicate really fully in either direction. We never see a list that says Hanani is a son of Hakaliah, for example. So take it as you will, but those are two possibilities there. Either way, Nehemiah knows him, and this is going to be a thing of his concern, his care for his own people. So he has come, Hanani, and other men as well, bringing a message from Judah. Perhaps uh, this is a regular thing that they have to do. Maybe they've brought offering or taxes or tribute to the king. It's hard to say. But they've come that great journey. And Nehemiah takes the opportunity to ask Hanani questions about the Jews who are living in Judah again, how they're doing, um, how Jerusalem is faring. Because that was the old capital of the people before. It's also where God's house is, the temple, which at this point is what, close to... 70 years old. How's the temple doing? How is the worship of Yahweh doing? And so he's asking these questions, and Hanani's reply is in verse 3 that things are not going well. The people are troubled. They are shamed. Uh, 
And the reason for this is that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, the gates destroyed by fire. Uh, I mean, if you have no wall, the gates really are irrelevant at that point, right? Um, because somebody could enter wherever they wanted to. You need the, the gate to enter a city or leave a city if the walls are intact. So they're both gone. I mean, they've got nothing. And that's the protection, the defense of the city in the human mind, right? Yahweh is the one who defends the city. And so if they wanted to pray in that regard, he could protect them even if the city had no wall. But it is a a problem that they're seeing. They're troubled by it. They are ashamed by it. They think that it's going to possibly result in their destruction. They would be easy prey for an enemy to come and attack. So Nehemiah's response is prayer. He, he weeps for days. We're not told how many, right? It's just plural. It could be two, could be seven. And we see he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, which is why I say seven. Um, the biblical number associated with fasting seems to cap at seven for the most part, other than Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness in the New Testament. So he fasts for several days and he prays before God. Now, the point of fasting, the purpose of fasting in the Old Testament can probably be seen easiest by reading Isaiah 58, 4, as the Lord says he does not like the, the fasting that they were doing because it wasn't really good or proper. But the, the purpose there, he says, is it will not result in your voice being heard on high. So the purpose of fasting is, again, connected to prayer, as Nehemiah is doing here. It is It is meant so that God will hear us. It is a sign of repentance. It is a sign of humility as we bow before our true king who is in heaven enthroned. Now, the question maybe here to talk about as a family, is fasting okay today? Do we ever fast? Christians of various kinds have fasted throughout history. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church is quite well known for it during the season of Lent in particular. Lutherans will do it too, though, giving something up in order to focus more of our time, more of our thoughts on prayer and scripture. Now, historically, in the, the church of scripture days, like Old and New Testament times, they fasted as a, a spiritual discipline, something that they did in times of grief, but also something that they would do on a, a regular basis. I can't tell you how regularly, but they seem to do so. It could be a good spiritual discipline for us to use today. Now, verse 5, we then get Nehemiah's prayer, which could lead you to a different topic of conversation as a family. How do we pray? When we start our prayer, who do we pray to? You can see who Nehemiah prays to, right? And how he addresses him is is quite beneficial. Again, humble and praising his king. How do we pray? What do we pray for? We can see all that from Nehemiah in this chapter. So he's going to pray to Yahweh. Calls him God, God of heaven, great, awesome. So he's praising the Lord, keeps his covenant, has steadfast love for his people, so uh, an unconditional love that is not changing. Those who love him and keep his commandments is a reference to his people there. Uh, It's something that you hear a lot in the Old Testament that they were supposed to do. Verse 6 is the request. So he has spent the, the first verse praising God. Now he requests what he's looking for. And the first part of this is to be heard. 
God, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open. Hear my prayer. See the people's need. Hear the prayer of your servant. I pray day and night. So he's praying this frequently. And then it moves into confession. So his, his prayer to be heard begins by confessing his sins and the sins of the people. That's something that might make you kind of thrown off there a little bit, but he's praying on behalf of the church. He's praying on behalf of himself, his own family. Lord, forgive us. We have acted corruptly against you. We have not kept your statutes, your commandments, your rules. And so rightfully, he then goes to verses 8 and 9, more of a summary. You're not going to see a direct citation of this somewhere in the Old Testament but that the Lord speaks this way throughout the Old Testament about his people. If they are faithful, they get to stay in the promised land. If they are not faithful, the Lord will scatter them in judgment. But his promise endures. He has promised to send a Savior. He will do so. And so he's going to gather the remnant. He will bring them back to himself, that they will be his people again. So that's the the history that Nehemiah is going to reflect upon reminding God of, right? Verse 8, remember the word you commanded. Remember your own promise, O Lord. This is good. And again, a question for your children. What promises do we still wait for from God that we can ask him to remember? Well, there's a promise of forgiveness, which is already won for you on the cross in Jesus, but that he would give you that forgiveness, that he would include you in the work of his kingdom. There's the promise that Christ will return. This is actually how we're taught by scripture to pray. In Revelation 22, verse 20, the second to last verse of all scripture, we learn that that the Lord will come soon, and then John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Simple four-word prayer, but it reminds the Lord when we pray it to keep that promise. And then also that Jesus is preparing a place for us that we will be with him forevermore. Remind him of his promises. It's not that he doesn't know, but it's a connection between you and the Lord. It is a, a thing of faith. It helps us to build our trust in God. We, we not only ask him to remember, but it helps us to remember too. So Nehemiah lifts them up. These are your servants. You have redeemed them by your great power, by your strong hand. This is not a reference any longer to the exodus from Egypt, although that's often the reference of that idea in the Old Testament. Now it's a reference to Cyrus destroying Babylon and sending them home, as we talked about in the open. How has he redeemed us by his great power and strong hand? Well, that would be a reference to Christ crucified for us and risen again, that sin, death, and the devil would be defeated. Verse 11, let your ear be attentive. So he returns to the origin of his prayer, verse 6. Attentive to who? The prayers of your servant, Nehemiah, the prayer of your servants, who delight in your name. This would be all of the people in Judah who are faithful to God. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is a reference to what Nehemiah knows he's about to do. He must go before the king Artaxerxes and he must petition him on behalf of God's people. So grant me success, O Lord, as I seek the favor of the king So it's a prayer for himself. It's a prayer 
that he may have wisdom in order to know how to address the king. It's a prayer for the king, that the king would have that softened heart that would be willing to help, which we've seen, again, from Artaxerxes, that he has had a willingness to do before. And then that ends with Nehemiah telling us his position before the king, that he is the cupbearer. So that's our text for today. Tomorrow we will see Artaxerxes' response. Let us praise the Word incarnate, Christ who suffered in our place. Jesus died.